welcome back, and a special welcome to our next guest. He is a man I've known and admired for quite some time. We haven't had him on this program for altogether too long, so I'm delighted that he's back. His name is Bruce Klingner. He is uh, the, well, former Central Intelligence Agency's top specialist on North Korea and has been for many years one of the go-to guys uh, for the Congress, uh, for the media, uh, for us here at Secure Freedom Radio um, for insights into what is going on in North Korea and the implications of um, its military ambitions and the political situation on both sides of the demilitarized zone, for that matter. He specializes in all of these topics at the Heritage Foundation, where he is a senior research fellow for Northeast Asia in the Foundation's Asian Studies Center. And you can follow him, as I do, at Bruce Klingner on Twitter. Bruce, it's so good to have you back. Thank you for joining us once again, and welcome. Well, thank thank you. It's a pleasure to be back. I wanted to sort of... uh, talk through with you a problem that has been sort of emerging in the House of Representatives uh, at the moment. Um, It involves a piece of legislation called H.R. 3446, Peace on the Korean Peninsula Act. Um, Nobody could object to that principle, but uh, the question is, is that what would come of it? Before we get into the details of that bill, I I would like to, as I say, kind of calibrate with you. Um, What is the state of uh, North Korea at the moment? Um, It's military and particularly how it's postured uh, that might make peace on the Korean peninsula uh, not exactly a promising prospect. So along with having numerous nuclear weapons, uh, North Korea has missiles that can range not only all of South Korea and Japan and our critically important bases in, in Guam and Hawaii, uh, but the entire continental U.S. And they, they showed that with some ICBM launches they did earlier. Uh, along with that, they have conventional forces that are forward and offensively deployed close to the demilitarized zone, close to South Korea. So uh, over 70 percent of their conventional forces are forward deployed uh, within striking range of, of South Korea. Uh, and then something that I've, I've really delved into recently is their cyber capabilities. Many people think that, well, this little country that can't seem to keep the lights on at night couldn't possibly be a, a cyber threat. Uh, and actually, they are. For years, the U.S. Uh, and South Korea have said North Korea is in the top four countries of the world that are cyber threats. Uh, and when I really delved into it last year for a research paper, uh, I was astounded by what North Korea had done with cyber. They, Over the years, they've done uh, cyber espionage. They've done cyber bank robberies. They're, some are estimating getting $800 million to a billion dollars a year from cybercrime. They've gone after uh, cryptocurrencies and and all the like. Uh, They've gotten into infrastructure websites such as nuclear power plants, uh, even uh, web systems in South Korea that can regulate the speed of of trains in South Korea. So not only is it uh, certainly a a threat and a risk right now, but, you know, think in terms of a crisis or a war on the peninsula, the things that they could do, not only espionage, but cyber attacks, uh, even undermining the confidence in the international financial system. So it it really is kind of an, an amazingly broad and deep threat uh, to the United States and its allies from a country that's only some 25 million or so people. An, an underlying reality 
in all of that is that the 25 million people, the vast majority of them at least, are suffering enormously to maintain and grow and uh, utilize, to varying degrees, uh, these various uh, military, cyber intelligence, and, and other capabilities on the part of the North Korean regime. Is that not right? Oh, it, exactly. It's perhaps the most repressive regime in the world uh, today. Uh, and several years ago, when a UN commission of inquiry looked into North Korean human rights, uh, they assessed that the human rights violations were so widespread and systemic uh, that they constituted crimes against humanity and that they were violations not seen since Nazi Germany. Uh, the, the people are suffering. And when you see pictures of how emaciated they are and, and we learn of uh, the human rights violations you know it, it's awful and they have they they blame sort of natural conditions or weather uh, catastrophes um, but really it's decades of the socialist uh, government driven economic policies which you know have brought them to the brink of collapse and almost beyond uh, and and they brutally repress any kind of perceived threat to the regime um, you know some Americans when they've gone over have been arrested for uh, you know one person left a Bible behind in the men's room of a bar and that was seen as a threat to regime stability and he was given several years and at hard labor in, in a penal institution uh, he eventually was released early. But, uh, you know, any kind of not only direct criticism of the regime, but even just uh, being a Christian in North Korea is seen as a threat to regime stability. So it's it's really a brutal regime. And when we see how, how poorly off the people are economically, uh, many will blame the, the international and the U.S. sanctions. But you know, there are no sanctions against food and medicine and humanitarian assistance. Uh, and the U.S. and South Korea and others have repeatedly offered rice and medicine and COVID assistance. And it's the regime that's always rejected it. And when it has been provided, I think it's fair to say it generally has wound up going to the regime, to its uh, party cadre, to its uh, military, and not to the millions and millions of Koreans who are in desperate need of such humanitarian assistance, right? Right. So some will get to the people and it depends on how well it's monitored. And uh, the U.S. would provide food through the, the World Food Program, a U.N. organization. Uh, and North Korea and the World Food Program had an agreement years ago about sort of the level of monitoring and verification. Uh, and then when North Korea wouldn't abide by it, well, then that's when the, the aid stopped flowing. Uh, you know, so you know, there, there, some aid will get to the people and food or medicine. Uh, you know, others will. We've had reports that uh, the bags of of rice that were given to people during the day and and monitored. Well, that night the military would come knocking on the door and say, "Well, turn it over to the military." And also, aid is sort of fungible. You know, if, if you give the aid, even if it goes to the people, well, that frees up resources uh, that the regime may have otherwise had to spend on the people. And now that they can be spent on the military. It's, you know, if I give you $10, well, that can either go to food or that frees up $10 that you did have for something uh, else that you wanted to spend on. Let, let me turn from the sort of image of uh, population with, among other things, stunted growth from the privations that have been imposed upon it, uh, to say nothing of the you know, barbaric, inhumane control of the people of North Korea. 
in order to maintain this uh, forward deployed uh, and immensely dangerous North Korean military machine, the fourth largest in the world by some accounts, and I understand about 70% of it is um, in proximity to the demilitarized zone at any given time, meaning Seoul, which is pretty much just on the other side of it, and uh, and the rest of South Korea is, is very much in peril from these guys. Talk a little bit, if you would, Bruce Klingner, about the policies of the government of South Korea at the moment. Uh, its attitude has been described by other guests on this program as being willing to achieve reunification with the North on the North's terms, if necessary. Uh, is that an overstatement or does that sound about right uh, under the policies of Moon Jae-in? I would see it as the Moon administration being overly eager and naive in its approach to trying to reconcile and, and improve relations and restart dialogue with, with the North. So Moon is a liberal, progressive, left of center, however you want to describe it. Uh, and progressive administrations in the South have, have consistently uh, pursued a policy which has been referred to in a previous administration as the sunshine policy. Uh, and that's a reference to an Aesop's fable where the, the sun and the wind compete to get a man to take his coat off. The wind blows and blows and the man only tightens the, his hold on his coat. And the sun shines and gets the man to take off his coat. And the idea when applied to North Korea is that North Korea feels threatened. And therefore, if we were to reduce our own military posture if we were to reduce military exercises, et cetera, uh, as well as provide many benefits without any conditions in the beginning, then North Korea would feel reassured and therefore start to act like a normal nation. Well, I, I disagree with that. Uh, it's sort of like giving money to a bank robber to induce him to stop robbing banks. Uh, so what Moon has done is like previous liberal administrations is, is offered a long, long, long list of economic benefits. Now, unlike in the past, now international and U.S. sanctions preclude those kind of transfers. So South Korea can no longer provide billions of dollars of, of assistance to the North. And because of that, Moon is looking for other ways to try to, uh, in part, secure his own legacy as a peacemaker on the peninsula. So he, he's looking for different things. He's trying to induce dialogue between the U.S. and North Korea and South Korea with North Korea. Uh, and, and that brings up his, his latest initiative is an end of war declaration. Uh, and he's trying to get the U.S. to, to, to go along with that. So uh, I think it's just, a, you know, they, they will turn a blind eye to North Korean human rights violations. They will uh, acquiesce to uh, North Korean threats and insults and, you know, have a very non-conditional or unconditional approach towards the North, all in attempt to uh, not only improve relations, but at this point, even just to restart dialogue. I, I want to come back to the uh, end of war uh, declaration here in just a moment, but just staying with the moon policies, uh, Bruce, when you look at this uh, set of concessions or the belief that you know, if only we were nicer to the North Koreans, they would behave better, um, is there really any basis in historical experience that suggests that that's true? Is this just, you know, again, the kind of delusions that the left often engages in? Um, or is there some realistic prospect that uh, the regime, which as best I can tell, still 
vows to achieve the reunification of the peninsula by violent means, by invasion, um, is uh, actually susceptible to any of these kinds of inducements? We've tried many inducements in the past, and, and they haven't worked. Uh, you know, Some will say, well, sanctions haven't worked. Let's try something totally new and try dialogue and providing various benefits. Well, we've been trying that. Uh, we've had eight international agreements with North Korea on denuclearization, the, the first four of which they promised never to build nuclear weapons, and then the second four to give up what they promised never to build in the first place. Uh, South Korea has had 253 agreements with, with the North, not all nuclear. Um, they've provided billions of dollars in various forms of economic or humanitarian assistance. Uh, we've tried security guarantees and uh, you know soft power, et cetera, et cetera. So you know the only consistency is that North Korea continued to build up its its nuclear missile arsenals uh, and continued to subjugate its people. So you know it's not to say we don't try another agreement, but hopefully we learn from the lessons of the past and and have one that's you know better written with stronger verification. But uh, you know, there, but we still shouldn't be thing. under any illusions that uh, the the will to uh, fulfill these kinds of commitments is is not much in evidence. Which brings us to HR three four four six, as I say, the uh, piece on the Korean Peninsula Act. Um, Bruce Klinger, as a longtime uh, observer and analyst, um, dissector of what is uh, the policy of the North Korean government. Is there reason to believe that were a an agreement fashioned in some manner with them to uh, create an end of the Korean War that has effectively been accomplished by the armistice, but not legally, um, that this would be met with uh, a good faith uh, dismantling of its military in the north and uh, the threat that it poses to the south, do you think? Well, as you pointed out earlier, how can you be against peace? Um, it certainly sounds like such a great idea, uh, but it's how you do it. And so I, after following North Korea for many years, I, I'm cynical and, and skeptical, but uh, you know, willing to try things. But you know, if, if you look at, at both the uh, the U.S. legislation, which is is sort of a, a product of pushing by South Korea and and, and as well as other advocates, uh, as well as President Moon's push for an end of war declaration, you know it it sounds you know fine. How can you be against it? Uh, the Korean War officially is still going on seventy years later. How, you know, we haven't had major hostilities. We've had lots of acts of war and terror, but not major hostilities. Why not simply? sign a piece of paper and say the war is over and uh, you know why not have that be a way of initiating dialogue well there's a lot to unpack so what i find interesting is when moon administration officials and others that i've talked to who advocate an end of war declaration they on the one hand will make very grandiose claims as to what it will accomplish uh, President Moon said it will create a new order of reconciliation and cooperation and make irreversible progress on denuclearization. Uh, one of his senior uh, officials said it would be a driving force for real peace and a catalog catalyst for dialogue. And yet, on the other hand, in order to try to get the U.S. to sign it, they sort of highlight its uselessness. Uh, they'll say, look, it's, it's just a really simple 
diplomatic only uh, piece of paper. It really has no effect on the real world. Why not sign it? And I said, well, for that very reason, if it has no effect on the North Korean conventional threat to the South, why would you do that? You need to address the causes of uh, the threat to peace rather than simply signing a document. So we've had the armistice for 70 years, but it really was the, the strong presence of South Korean and U.S. forces which enforced that armistice by deterring North Korea from doing major hostilities. So, uh, you know, there's there's things it, it would be a very simple. Basically, the, the war is over, you know, get three or four signatures on it. Um, and it, it legally would have no impact on U.S. forces in South Korea. But, you know, it would create momentum not only within North Korea and China, but amongst progressives in, in the South as well as in the U.S. of, oh, if the war is over, why do we have troops there? Why do we have a, uh, you know, a promise of extended deterrence? Uh, why do we have a mutual defense treaty if the war is over? Well, then once you start reducing U.S. commitment to the South and, and U.S. forces there, who knows what could happen? But it's it's a slippery slope that I see as very dangerous uh, without any benefits from a, a document that wouldn't address the North Korean threat. Um, Bruce, you've written a very thoughtful paper about this subject uh, entitled End of Korean War Declaration Could Have Serious Consequences for Alliance Security. And it brings me back to something we talked about a moment ago. The the policies of the Moon government seem to me to make it, well, absolutely predictable, really, that this agreement, should it come to pass, would translate into insistence from the Moon government, uh, especially, again, as you said, given its determination before the end of this president's term uh, next year, that uh, he has some lasting achievement in the peace portfolio uh, to point to, uh, that he would, in fact, say, hey, uh, we no longer need these troops. Uh, the alliance can be modified or, or truncated, I guess, um, because we now have this arrangement with the North Korean government. I, I shudder at the thought of that because it does seem to me, as you've indicated, that um, this would be a very tempting thing for the North, uh, given its proclivities, given its, again, stated policy to uh, achieve through force the reunification of the peninsula. It bears our close uh, scrutiny, which, of course, you're providing at the Heritage Foundation, Bruce Klinger, but it also, I think, argues very strongly for opposing efforts to um, create conditions that that really could conduce to a, a second Korean War, not peace on the Korean Peninsula. Bruce, I hope you'll keep us surprised of how this is developing and um, more broadly, really, what we need to be thinking about with respect to the North Korean government and uh, it, various threats to our security and that of our alliances. Uh, key elements. Keep up the great work at the Heritage Foundation, my friend. Come back to us again soon, if you would. I hope the rest of you will come back to us again tomorrow. Same time, same station. Until then, this is Frank Gaffney. Thanks for listening.